We have spent the last four sessions with the Book of Esther. These were some of the parts that are not talked about in your children's Bible story books or really preached about that much. Let's take a look at where we ended last time. We started our study hearing about the partying that King Ahasuerus did. He hosted lavish parties that lasted days and even months. Then he got drunk and wanted to steal his queen away from her own lavish party, but she refused. She got advice from his drunk advisors and ended up banishing the queen from his sight and finding someone better. Or in Later, after coming home with his tail between his legs after failing in his attack on Greece, he is depressed and gets more advice, this time from his servants. They tell him that he should hold a contest with all the virgins that he can find in order to find a new wife. Now we are to part of the story that is in the children's Bible. Well, sort of. Because as I pick, as a kid, when I would read this story or hear it, I would picture it something like the movie Cinderella. I would picture the excitement, the, the announcement of a, a ball to pick a new, a new queen, the excitement of everyone in the land of hearing about this, this grand ball and then getting all dressed up and, and prim and proper to go in and to dance the night away. They were trying to, to win the heart of the king and dancing and merriment and excitement in the air. However, this contest that was proposed by the servants was far from what Cinderella was. In fact, this was also far different than what the advisors from chapter 1 had in mind as well. Custom dictated that Ahasuerus' search for a queen should have been only from seven noble families. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian during the Roman Empire, he wrote that there were more than 400 virgins brought to Susa just for this occasion. But before we get to that, we have a small aside. Finally, four weeks into our study, we get to meet Esther and Mordecai, the heroes of our book, the title character, and our first Jewish people. Now in the Bible, the first mention of something is always very important. So let's take a look at this first mention of Esther and Mordecai as we read Esther chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So this takes place in Susa. 
And Mordecai is mentioned 58 times in the book of Esther. So then we have to ask the question, what do we know about Mordecai from these verses? The most important, he was a Jew. This was, this is the only time in the whole Old Testament that a native member of the community of Israel is identified as a Gentile, but because he wasn't apparent, it wasn't apparent that he was a Jew. But he was a son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, and he was the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was, if you recall, was the youngest son of Jacob, but was favored similarly to Joseph, though the Bible does not show it quite as blatantly as it does with Joseph. But Benjamin wasn't, even though he was the youngest, he wasn't, it wasn't a lowly tribe. Because on Sunday mornings, we're talking through First uh, Samuel, the book of First Samuel, and we see that King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. What we also see about Mordecai is that he was a sudden parent to his cousin. He was the orphaned, it, his cousin was the orphaned daughter of his uncle. And he was in exile. It's in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them with the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Do you remember this from a couple of years ago? The Lord was punishing Israel for their disobedience, and he allowed them to be taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Now, there were multiple times when captives were taken into Babylon. So the one in Daniel was the first one. And then in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 10 through 17, it tells us about the second one. Um, 10 through 17. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut it in pieces, all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made. As the Lord had foretold, he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his official, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought to captive, 
brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, seven thousand, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, one thousand, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. So this occurred in 597 it'll show BC. It'll show up on your timeline as the second deportation. Um, and it was a group of, of 10,000 men. And it included King Jehoiachin and his family, the chief men, the officials, men of value, men of valor, craftsmen and metal workers, and all but the poorest in the land. So Kish, the great-grandfather of Mordecai, was taken to Babylon with this group. And so we know these things about Mordecai, but let's remember what it says about this, him being being in exile. In, um, if you flip back to Esther chapter 2 and we look at verse 6 again, verse 6 has a re repeated phrase. It says, Who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. That repeated phrase is carried away. They are, they were, that means that they were taken into captivity. They were removed. And it was important enough for the author of Esther to mention this three times, this phrase three times in one verse. Because it's setting us up. It's important. It's setting us up for later when he hides his and Esther's Jewishness. And that, that phrase reminds us that he is a foreigner in a foreign land, but he's still subject to the king of Persia. It's a reminder that he is Jewish and he is there in Susa against his will because of the sin of, the, of others before him. Now you're thinking, but in, you said earlier king, Ezra, or king Cyrus gave the Jews permission to return home in 539 BC. And that does happen. That's in Ezra 1 verses 2 and 3. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus, King Cyrus has his heart stirred by God. And he tells the Jews they have permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now they're given permission to rebuild the temple. But if you also think back to this time and even look on your timeline, we see that Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, hasn't occurred yet. Those, uh, the walls of Jerusalem are not rebuilt. It wasn't, it, they were working on the temple, but it wasn't actually super safe to live in Jerusalem. Now, that's a study for another day, um, 
but we can look at Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. The punishment from God is over. The discipline on the Israelites has been served. And God was who made Cyrus, uh, King Cyrus command the freedom of the Jews. We know that God put a limit on this punishment, and we talked about it when we studied Daniel a couple of years ago. And by the way, I'm working on getting Ruth and Daniel studies up on the podcast. I figured out how to do it. Now I just need to get the time to do it. So it's coming if you didn't join us and couldn't listen to it previously. But when we think about this time of the captivity of the Babylonian and Persian rule over Jerusalem, the key to remember in this whole study, just as it was a key in Daniel, is to remember that God has preserved and will continue to preserve his people. Because Jeremiah 29, 11, right after the, the verse we just read, says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God has plans for Israel. God has plans that he wants to use them. He will not let the Jewish nation be destroyed. Landon Dowden in the Christ-Centered Expository Commentary says, if God is not going to destroy his own people, he certainly will not let anyone else do it. He ordains the discipline for our repentance and reconciliation, not for our ruin. So Mordecai could have gone back to Jerusalem. So there's a level of choice by Mordecai to stay in Susa. But what we see is that God uses that choice because God is sovereign. And his, in his divine providence... His will will be done. But what is interesting, or what I found interesting, is the name Mordecai. And while we know it's common for Jews to have Persian names, Daniel and his friends were given Babylonian names, if you recall. We don't know how they came to get them. What we do know is the name Mordecai is likely from the name Marduk, and Marduk is the chief Babylonian god. And we are never told what Mordecai's Jewish name is. Then we meet Esther. Esther means star, but it's also very similar to the name of the Babylonian goddess of love, Ishtar. But we do know what Esther's Jewish name is. We're told her name is Hadassah, which means myrtle. And myrtle has a star-shaped flower. And so the, that's part of the thought of where her name, her, her Jewish and Persian names came from the same thing. Now, knowing them by their Persian names is our first indication that they appear more Persian than Jewish. But then just from verse 7, we learn a few things about Esther. And some of those things are that she was named Hadassah. She had a Jewish name. She was orphaned. 
She was brought up by her male cousin. But then we also see that she was lovely. It, it tells us she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at in verse 7. When physical attributes are shared, especially when they're shared at that first mention, it means it's of special relevance to the story. And so here Mordecai has, is bringing up his, his lovely cousin, raising her like a daughter. And now we need to get back to this search for a new queen. So Esther 2, 8 through 11 so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hege, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Hege, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made, note, made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So we knew that Esther was beautiful, so we should not be surprised that she was taken into the palace taken into is the is the term used in the ESV that we're reading from it means to take to capture to snatch generally when this word is used in in the Hebrew language it suggests that the taking is against the will of the one being taken so we have to assume that the girls were not given a choice in this matter this would not have been a happy experience for them. It would have been far from the joy and exuberance and excitement of Cinderella's stepfamily when we watched that movie as, as children. But take a second and imagine being a virgin at this time. You're dressed in your best to either be hauled off to Susa or brushed off for not being pretty enough. And now we meet a new character. We meet Hege. Hege was the king's eunuch that was in charge of the women. His job was to provide pleasure for the king. He was influential. He had some authority. He was in charge of the food, the cosmetics, the etiquette training, the servants, and the living arrangements. But he too was a pagan. But he was a eunuch. And while we're not going to go into it here, we know that as a eunuch, it wasn't just physically that the timing was selected so that hormonally he wouldn't be attracted to women. And we see in verse 9 that Esther's beauty was so overpowering, her, her inner and outer beauty was so overpowering that she won his favor, that he liked her. Now that word favor is hesed. And we've talked about this word before when we studied Ruth. It was the word that was used in Ruth about her dedication to Naomi. 
It can also refer to loyalty, kindness, mercy. And although God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, the use of this word indicates that there is a religious mood to the text. And so Hage, or Esther won Hage's favor. He saw something deeper than just her physical desirability. And winning his favor is something that she is doing rather than something being done to her. Right? She won it. She wasn't just given it. So Esther had good people skills. Now, her portion of food that's mentioned in verse 9 was likely meant to fatten her up in order to enhance her beauty. I mean, wouldn't that be a great time to live? She would have had uh, foods that were high in nuts and olive oil. And then we read verse 10. And I'm going to reread it. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now, this is another one of the many items in the book of Esther that we don't know for sure, but we can still think about. We think about why Mordecai might have wanted Esther to keep her Judaism a secret. Now, what we're going to see in the coming weeks and coming months is that there was anti-Semitism occurring in Persia. There was, despite King Cyrus giving them equality, letting them prosper, letting them have jobs and own land and, and do as if they were 100% citizens of Persia, there were still people and groups and in part the nation that didn't see them as equal. So Esther may have been, um, may have had no choice of becoming, had no chance of becoming queen if her nationality had been disclosed. We know ambition does not seem to characterize Mordecai elsewhere. And so we don't think it was just him trying to get her to be made queen. So there must have been something worse than just being disqualified as, as queen that would have happened to her. And so... So Mordecai must have been trying to protect her in some way. Now he probably wasn't thinking ahead to, to the, that the position might prove advantageous to her people. Um, but he may have thought that knowledge of her identity might prove dangerous to her. And the king's ignorance of her nationality would give her a chance to survive, potentially. The king's ignorance of her nationality, however, also meant her, un her undoing as well as that of her people. So most of the Jews were assimilated culturally enough to blend in. And so Esther would have had that same would have been doing that same thing. When we think about Jewishness, especially Old Testament Jewishness, they were supposed to follow laws that were put in place by God in order to set his people apart, 
to make them different, to make them stand out from the crowd of, of foreigners in the world. Yet just like most of the Babylonian captives of the time in Daniel, they didn't practice the full Jewish law. Likely Esther and Mordecai weren't living in a kosher home. They definitely were not going to the temple and practicing sacrifices. Probably not even the Sabbath laws. And that's just a handful of the ones that are, that are prescribed in the Bible. But this fact that they were not practicing the Judaism that they followed does not take away from the story. It actually adds to it. Because many Jews had all but forgotten about God in their daily discipline. But he had not forgotten them. They may have forgotten their identity, but he hadn't. But it wasn't just her Jewishness that Mordecai wanted to hide. It was also her being an orphan. Ahasuerus' search beyond the noble families was risky enough, and to choose a girl with no living parent was almost unheard of. So here's the question. Is compromise with the world necessary? Can we blur the means as long as it justifies the end? Romans 12.21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If we are seeking to do good, should we start with a lie? Now it can be easy to look at this passage and to judge Esther and Mordecai for their shortcomings. But the beautiful thing about this book is that we are reminded a couple of things according to Landon Dowden. First, God's people are not perfect, but God's plan is. If we were disqualified by our imperfections, none of us would be used. God does not seek perfection. And the second one is knowing, or we aren't going to look at the passage today, but you can look in Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 54 through 62 are the, are the bulk of what what I'm talking about, but it starts a little before and continues after that as well. But it's the story of Peter denying Jesus. And at the moment that Peter realized what he had done, when that rooster crowed, he went out and he wept bitterly. Knowing that Peter was ultimately led to repentance, and later, if you keep reading in the Gospels, to restoration, we can have hope that our sins can truly be forgiven as well. As the hymn goes, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. As we close, I want to challenge you this week. Mordecai and Esther hid their Jewish identity. Are you currently concealing the fact that you belong to God? Have you hesitated to share things about the Bible for fear of losing out on something? A promotion, a favor, a friend? How about this one? Are you seeking approval from others rather than resting in God's approval in Christ? We are now going to dismiss to our small group time.